Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where I I don't even know what to say this week. Like nothing (laughs) is coming to me other than that we love our gay pirates. (laughs) We do love our gay pirates. Oh my God. (laughs) I am Karen Peterson joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Lauren, how are you? I'm not bad. I'm a little tired, but otherwise, otherwise doing just fine here. Yeah. And <laughs> I do and... love my gay pirates. I do. I have, I, I'm like, I'm even, I love my gay pirates even more than I thought I did. Yeah. And I love them more than I did last year. <laughs> and I love all the new gay pirates. Like there's so many and it's wonderful. And I love it. If you don't know what the heck we're talking about, you obviously haven't been listening the last couple of weeks. Welcome. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> our flag means death, which is on HBO. No, sorry. On max. And, uh, we love it. And it brings so much joy to our hearts. And um, yeah, we're in the middle of season two. They released three episodes the first week and two episodes this week. And we're just just loving every minute of it. Unhinged lesbians are just like, as soon as they, as they, as they showed up, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my I God. I didn't necessarily yes. think the show was missing anything until they appeared. And then I was like, oh, this is what the show was missing. The unhinged, long-time married lesbians. <laughs> like, like just how really can you hate that? It's wonderful. <laughs> to, to just, you know, get drunk and high and just throw a major monkey wrench into everything. <laughs> they are to so mock, unhinged in the best ways. To mo- I mean, I'm sorry. I love that one of the most kind of romantic and like sweet moments between ed and seed is just interrupted with the lesbians laughing their asses off. <laughs> it's just it's just like oh my god it's so earnest <laughs> oh if you don't watch our flag means death you really should because it's it's it, it just it's the show that never fails to just bring so much joy it's so true it's so true and I was just looking at the list that you sent of all of Ed's crimes. <laughs> He's committed many, many great crimes, honestly. Yeah, that, that got released as like a um a behind the scenes photo, I believe, of all of the crimes he committed on his wanted poster. Uh, it's great. Unlicensed midwifery. I like that one, yeah. Smart casual attire at a formal function. <laughs> I like communism, whatever that is. <laughs> Wearing a wig as a hat. <laughs> um, plagiarism. Cart rental under a fraudulent name. <laughs> Cart rental. Uh, genocide, probably. <laughs> Not the genocide is funny. It's the probably that's funny. Yes. Please air further grievances below. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um love it so all right well this week we are not going to spend the whole time talking about our flag means death although honestly we could 
Uh, but no, we we uh, we thought it'd be fun to talk about urban horror and and urban legends. And uh, so we have a couple of movies that we're going to use to just dive into to this topic. So but what is urban horror, Lauren? What is urban horror, Karen? Um, <laughs> well, I, I think that so, so often we associate horror for I, we associate horror with very isolated areas, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that's what you get when you get a lot of the rural hearts, like the haunted house, the, um, you know, the killer in the woods kind of thing. And I, I think that urban horror seems to particularly increase uh, in in like the 70s and 80s in film where it becomes more citified. Right. It's like the dangers that exist within a ma- within a big city, but also just the inherent isolation, that combination of being in a major city, but also being alone in a major city. Um, and, and all, uh, it's interesting that all of the, not all, but, but several of the films that we're, we're talking about deal with urban legends. So those kind of oral traditions that, um, that have become popularized that really just like modern folklore, basically, you know, um, and, and that's mentioned a number of times in, in both Candyman and in urban legend. Um, but like a lot of horror, uh, urban horror tends to be about the return of the repressed, although it tends to focus more on things like race and poverty and kind of the disaffection of youth. I, I think it's interesting that the the first two films, The Lost Boys and Candyman, The Lost Boys is 87, I think, mm-hmm. and Candyman is 92. So they're fairly close, five years difference, right? Um, and they're, in, they're set in very different areas of the country, but they're all kind of focused on this these communities that have that have been ignored or that are feared at some level by the wider population, that kind of um, white flight from the cities and uh, and, you know, moving towards suburbia. And it's like, well, what are you running from? Well, you're running from vampires and like murderous ghosts and things like that. So I think it, uh, urban horror tends to really exploit those those issues um, in interesting and, and less interesting ways. But um yeah at at the end of the day i think it all comes down to that that question of the return of the repressed which so much of horror is about and those things that we don't want to look at that we don't want to pay attention to so poverty and race in particular yeah well and where so much of our our folk horror movies take place in rural communities kind of ice Mm -hmm. like that those have their own set of like degree of isolation where you have an entire town that is isolated or or population of people um, and sometimes it, you can pull that back to, you know, an individual or very, very small group of people that is is isolated. But in in urban horror movies, like sometimes the the fact that there's people around actually makes it more dangerous, depending on the circumstances, because not everybody's paying attention. Or if you're doing something in the middle of Halloween and everyone's dressed in a costume, how do you know which is the masked killer? Uh, you know, stuff like that, where um yeah the using the surroundings of having so many people around can actually heighten the danger in a very different way. Well, and very often it's about outsiders coming into an urban space as mm-hmm. well. So people who don't, who, you know, quote, don't belong there, who didn't grow up there, who are, um, you know, white people who are in the case of Lost Boys, people from Phoenix, <laughs> uh, but, but like someone who is, is an outsider entering 
the city entering the urban space and being suspected. And I, I do think a lot of it kind of harkens to that kind of that pair, particularly of the white person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of like, and, and I think that this is particularly highlighted in a really interesting way in, in Candyman, um, where you've got people entering these spaces that where they are very much like, they very much stand out, right? It's just like, you're not supposed to be here kind of space. And both being protected by the privilege of whiteness or by the privilege of the way that they dress or things like that, but also being endangered by it and the development of that of that kind of tension. Um, and that's before you even get to like the supernatural elements of, of something like Candyman or something like The Lost Boys. You're still talking about people who are like, you are an outsider, you're coming in from somewhere else, you're not supposed to be here and you're in danger because of it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about The Last Boys, which, as you mentioned, is from 1987. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. And this cast is just it's just crazy. So you've got Jason Patrick and Corey Haim, who play brothers. Diane Wiest is their mom. Bernard Hughes is their grandpa. And then you've got uh, folks from the fictional totally completely fictional town of santa carla that does not exist at all and there's definitely not a santa clara nearby (laughs) um (laughs) anyway uh so some of the townsfolk are keep played by Kiefer sutherland jamie gertz um billy worth alex winter and then you've got the frog brothers edgar and alan frog uh, played by Jameson Newlander and Corey Feldman. And this is the first official film of the Corys, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, which was a very big thing in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, so you've got this this mom who is recently divorced, brings her two sons with her from Phoenix to back to the town where she grew up, where her dad lives, and they're staying with him. And uh, very quickly, they start to meet the locals and um, and uh, shit gets crazy (laughs) because it turns out (laughs) that there's a vampire problem in Santa Carla. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love this movie. I've seen it a million times. I it's just one that um, I don't know why. Like, even now, after seeing it so many times, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is if it's any one thing that I just really love about this movie. There's so many just fun and funny moments. And also 80s Kiefer Sutherland is just freaking hot. And um, like, it's just, it's a lot of pretty people. Um, I don't buy for a second that Jason Patrick is about to enter his senior year of high school, more like senior year of his second college degree. But um, <laughs> but we don't care about that. It's fine. <laughs> it's so it's so true. Like watching that, I was just like, why did he have to come with his mom and his brother? Like he isn't he in like he's got to be at least in college, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, he's supposed to be playing uh, high school, like soon to be a high school senior. And it's funny because he's actually he was only like twenty one when this movie came out. He just looks like an adult. Like yeah. that's that's the thing. He just has he. He seems older. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a difference between 21 and 17, like pretty yeah, substantial. Definitely. So people do age a bunch in that couple of years. But, uh, but yeah. So, um, and they never specifically say that he's in high school, but there's comments like, oh, like, well, she's still having a lot of control over what he does. And she makes comments about like, things are going to change when school starts, mister, and stuff like that. So <laughs> you, you're supposed to believe that he's probably 
finishing up high school. <laughs> but anyway, what are your thoughts about The Lost Boys? I I have I have very mixed feelings about The Lost Boys because it's I I'm not in love with it, but it's also really influential and it's very it's very different. Like there were a number of these kind of more I guess urbanized vampire movies. So you've got this movie, you've got Vampire in Brooklyn. Um you've got uh, which which I believe we talked about when we talked about Wes Craven. We did, yeah. Uh you have um uh Innocent Blood, which is a John Landis film that I think takes place in southern New York or Chicago. I can't remember. I think Chicago. Uh Fright Night, which the, is in the suburbs. Yeah, Fright Night, Kiss of the Vampire um with Nick Cage. So you've got there are a lot there seems to be this belief that like vampires really fit into urban areas. And I kind of, I kind of get that because the sort of the aesthetics of it are very sort of punkish, heavy metalish, biker gangish. You kind of, you kind of question like, what are, what do these people like to do? You know? Um, but it's very much that kind of heightened aesthetic of the, the disaffected urban youth, the gang member, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's, you overlay that with, oh, they're actually all vampires. Um, I was very entertained by Variety's quote that was on the Wikipedia page for this film. Um, if I can find it again. Let's see, just a second. Okay, so yeah, yeah, Variety panned the film um, and they said, quote, a horrifically dreadful vampire teen exploitation entry that daringly advances the theory that all those missing children pictured on garbage bags and milk cartons are actually the victims of blood-sucking bikers. It's that sort of, like, I don't 100% agree with it because I do think it's a really fun film in a lot of ways. <laughs> but it, it it is that. It's just like, well, actually, you know, missing children and gang violence and everything, it's not it's vampire gangs, you know, it's, it's rival biker vampire gangs, like all of this shit. Um, and, and it does sort of, you know, express, I think some of that, that terror of the urban space of like the kids who are just, you know, hurting people for fun, um, who are just doing fun things. And at the same time, it's such a dorky film in so many ways <laughs> That it's hard to really, I don't know whether it would have played differently in the 80s, but it's hard to really sum it up much like, oh, yeah, this is terrifying because these guys like have the most crazy mullets and they they very much play like kids who think they look like bikers or something. I don't know. There's just this element to it of, of like cosplay almost where you're just like, oh, I'm tough. Just like, sure, you are, kid. Yeah. All right. You're re- you're really fucking tough. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely that that play acting, like we're playing at being tough and edgy. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things, though, that I think that this that work really well for this setting is the fact that this is a beach town. It's it's very much a touristy area. They arrive in the summer, so there's a lot of nightlife, and that is like such a perfect place for vampires to thrive, especially these particular vampires who really are a gang of, of teenagers who uh, mm-hmm. who knows how long they've been teenagers, but uh, but like, it's just kind of this perfect setting where nobody really looks, looks twice at them or expects like, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you home? You're out yeah. past curfew or anything, because it's just not how, first of all, it was the eighties and there was no such thing, but um, also uh, it's just, 
you know, it's, it's just this particular area. There's an amusement park, there's a boardwalk, there's all these things that just make this a bustling nightlife, which is Mm -hmm. a perfect setting for a vampire story. Yeah. And, and I think that that's generally why that's a good point. I I think that's generally why a lot of um, there's so many urban vampire movies Mm-hmm. where and and you've got pretty much clean pickings and it, it is sort of that that element of like the danger of the city where you can vanish and no one notices right um no one remarks on it and and particularly in in like the 1980s and the 1990s where cities were viewed as being these very dangerous spaces um mm-hmm. so like you know these kids disappearing in the and the in the film they like make a point of showing all the missing posters the kids on milk cartons kind of thing yeah. Um, of all of these kids, but there's definitely this implication that no one really cares, that like no one's really paying attention to the fact that, hey, a lot of kids vanish in this town. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not that it's yeah, it, it's just kind of one of those things that just is accepted, which by the time you get to the end of the movie and grandpa says what he says mm-hmm. about it. it's like oh okay so yeah this is something that people just accept as a reality in this town there are people who know about it and they just what are they gonna do you know <laughs> there's sort of this weird apparent uh acceptance of the reality of of what's happening underneath <laughs> i don't know i just reality- find that really funny <laughs> the reality of the the vampires well, I I like the kind of gang initiation that what that Jason Patrick goes through in this film mm-hmm. because he's like told to do things. They're just like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Like, is it just because you've got this like cute girl? Like, that's the only reason. And and these guys are just like, hey, drink this random bottle of wine that's totally not blood. Like, do this, do that. It's just like, why, why, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, he's a very um michael he's a very weak character like not is, yeah like 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 actually the character himself is a very weak person because he just he gets dragged along to this place he doesn't want to go but he just kind of so much of what michael does throughout this movie is just like listening to and doing whatever anybody else tells him to do he doesn't really have much of a mind of his own even to the point where he does stuff that his little brother tells him to do like he just is not <laughs> he's not a strong personality at all which is it's the dangerous dangers of peer pressure right here that's what this film is about <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and how this is why you need to have a backbone kids so you can stand up and not eat the worm spaghetti just say no (laughs) but i mean i laughing at it but i think that there is that element to Mm -hmm. it of of like you know oh you can just you should just say no because this is what happens to kids who just like go along with the group and and you know you're being turned into turned into vampires (laughs) exactly like anybody could be one Mm-hmm. But but honestly, I think that that is part of it, too, with this movie is like this did come at a time where it was like, you know, warning kids about the dangers of being on drugs and stuff. And it's like, you know, this in a, in a way in urban or sorry, in The Lost Boys, uh, vampirism is kind of the substitute for like drug addiction because he goes down that same path. It's like it starts mm-hmm. off as something kind of harmless. And then all of a sudden <laughs> he, he he can't just get himself out of the situation. He needs help. 
Yeah, you you know, you get into it because pretty girl was there mm-hmm. and she like she hangs out with these guys and you want to be cool like that. Exactly. You um, don't want them to think you're a loser. Yeah, it it, do, it does have definite elements of of drug addiction or of um kind of, kind of like an after school special but with vampires mm-hmm. instead of drugs. <laughs> uh but I, I think that's interesting, again, that vampirism, particularly at this era of filmmaking, is very often represented that way. as like drug addiction, alcoholism, um, there, there are parallels in a film that's a little bit later, Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, to like the AIDS crisis. Like there's this whole thing about disease, but it's it's almost like a chosen disease, right? Yeah. It, you know, the the need for blood, the desire for blood is like something that you have to kind of participate in right Mm -hmm. and then it captures you and it destroys you from the inside out and that's very much where a lot of these films kind of view vampirism so you you know it's not a one-to-one analogy all the time but definitely like in something like this it definitely plays that way and then you've got the little brother who's just like what's happening to you i i don't understand what's happening to my brother he used to be so cool (laughs) we're from phoenix we're awesome people (laughs) Yeah. One of the things too, though, and I guess this probably speaks a little bit again to, to Michael's character is in a lot of movies about vampires, you get, you get that like seduction. You understand how they get drawn into this world. Even if you're like, yeah, that's stupid. Turn away. You kind of, you get it with Michael though, in, in the lost boys, nothing of other than Jamie Gertz being really pretty nothing about what they do is appealing they're rude (laughs) they mock him from the very moment they first meet him like Mm -hmm. they mess with his mind when they're offering him food like they're just horrible to him and it's like other than the fact that she's cute really nothing about this seems fun why why are you here Mm -hmm. well yeah in some ways the film like works against itself because and again some of this might be about distance from the time period now um, is because it all seems so dorky. Mm-hmm. Like it really does seem like these these guys are not particularly cool. They just like think they're cool. Yeah, <laughs> you know they they're nothing like you say nothing that they do is particularly attractive, right? It's not like oh, wouldn't it be cool to be like them? It's like no, no, not really. And I think at that level, it does sort of parallel that kind of after school special vibe, um, where th- it, there's always this like effort to show the drug addicts or you know the pushers or whoever uh who's like you know pressuring you into doing something they're usually represented as being so nasty they're just like well i wouldn't agree to go with that guy regardless Mm -hmm. like he's not cool yeah exactly so it like i i and i think that that's where some of the campiness then begins to come in because a lot of it is just it's sort of like this is just sort of dorky like Mm -hmm. this is this is like someone who read Interview with the Vampire and was like, let's make it into an after school special. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. And that's where I say, like, I can't pinpoint a specific reason why I I just delight in this movie so much other than that it is really fun. But it is incredibly dorky. I completely agree with you. And there's even just random stuff like... um like how Michael, when he starts to realize that he's turning into a vampire, thanks to his brother pointing it out... because he can't even figure that out on his own um and he goes to the the like vampire lair 
And he's yelling at Star and he's just like, what's happening to me? And then she's like, I I tried to stop this for you. Okay, let's have sex. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, what? (laughs) Like they just and it's like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, they shouldn't have the sex scene in this movie. I'm not saying that. It's just like so random. It's just a lot of that Mm -hmm. where it's like, I feel like there's some connective scenes missing in multiple (laughs) places in this movie where it's like. You're missing a you're missing a transition here. Well, it's it's like the 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 Frog Brothers, right? Yeah. And at one point, at one point when they've like broken into the vampire lair, and one of the things with killing vampires, as we all know, is that they have to sleep during the day. So you just got to find their lair and you got to kill them when they're asleep. Yeah, and they have this whole dialogue about how they don't know who the head vampire is, which they don't. But it's like, but the guy who's like the literal leader of the gang, that is quite obviously the literal leader of the gang. Kiefer Sutherland shouldn't you kill him first mm-hmm. because he's the leader of the gang so even if he's not like the head vampire he's still definitely the most dangerous one of all of them and they're just like oh no we'll kill the little guy the one who poses very little threat <laughs> first and it's just like you know who the leader gang leader is <laughs> you know it's because it's obvious exactly that anyone- yeah yeah, poor Marco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor little Alex Winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cute. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Frog Brothers and 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 Sam. Uh, <laughs> actually, I don't even know what to say about them. They're so funny. They're kind of the ones that introduce us to this film's mythology surrounding vampires, and and most of it is stuff that's like. You know all the normal things that we've heard oh they don't like garlic and mm-hmm. um yeah like all the normal vampire rules but uh and they also kind of give us a hint that this has been going on for a long time too because they've obviously spent a lot of time um paying attention to this i just i think it's funny how because they're they're these like middle school early high school age kids they're like 13 14 15 years old and so they're the ones that uh, just think they have everything all figured out. And they're like, we're going, we're going to solve this problem. This is, this actually is such an 80s thing of like not consulting with adults, just taking it upon themselves to do it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. Frog Brothers, they're funny. I, I, I think what this one was that, again, it's that dweebishness. Mm-hmm. And then, like, everybody's a dweeb. You've got, like, these, these you know, 14-year-old kids or whatever. And, and I mean, I laughed at the, the whole, Sam's whole thing about just, like, well, I'm from Phoenix. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, oh, I'm so impressed. People from <laughs> Phoenix expect you to be impressed. I And oh, I thought yeah. something of which I was not aware. I did not know that Phoenix was an impressive city to anyone, but or was meant to be. But it's just that kind of thing where it's just, like, okay you're all a bunch of dorks like like, (laughs) no if you're the only hope for santa carla then yeah it's understandable why there are so many vampires everywhere (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so true well and then they they think that they figured out okay that it's max is the head vampire and they're determined to prove that it's him and I love how there's like one important detail that they completely miss, which is the fact that Max has been invited into the home, which renders all of his powers, all, all of their powers against him, totally useless. <laughs> like, well, I just that, love that. 
that's that's a, a vampire that seems to be an invention of this particular film i never heard that mm-hmm. you you have to invite vampires in right that's right. part of the the story you have to like say you have to tell them to come in that's used in a lot of vampire stories um but the idea that like oh it renders all of like anything they can use against him moot like i did not i yeah that's that's a new one to me yeah especially because they also then violate their own rule a little bit later (laughs) when Kiefer and his friends show up and they're able to like kill them with with holy water and and Mm -hmm. everything like they're their power they're able to to defeat them in the house but that's okay it's a fun it was a fun little twist because then you think like oh it's obviously not max but it totally is max (laughs) so i don't know overall what do you what do you think of the lost boys in regards to urban vampire movies well, I, I, like I say, I do think that it kind of expresses that that social anxiety, that um, cultural, not social anxiety, cultural anxiety mm-hmm. that was was going particularly in the eighties and nineties. You know, and that that whole concept of the, like you say, the drug pushers, the um, the disaffected youths who just don't have any, don't have any place, basically, right? And they don't, they don't have any adult supervision. Um, they don't like have any, they're kind of unmoored and everything. And so their only response to it is to become violent, is to, you know, do all that. It's, it's very much in keeping with a lot of films from the 1980s that don't have anything to do with vampires. Um, but creating that sort of dangerous space within the, the urban area and ascribing it to something that is supernatural versus it just being the reality of the way the society has developed and the way the society has failed kids etc yeah it's a lot of fun it is also a lot of fun (laughs) and i love me the sexy saxophone man (laughs) again with the dweebishness of this movie (laughs) (laughs) i think it was I think it was around 2017. I think it was it was either for the the 30th anniversary of the movie or it was when Joel Schumacher died and it was like memories of Joel Schumacher. One of those two big things. Um I think it was a variety ran a story. Someone tracked down the sexy saxophone man <laughs> and interviewed him and just kind of caught up on where he is in life now and stuff and I just I think it's so funny how this random greased up dude who's in like 30 seconds of this movie <laughs> this is one of the most memorable parts of it well i think he was like a uh, a backer for tina turner for a while as well yeah so he was like a, a known like he's not a random kind of person known. it's just like a yeah. random moment like a random it's very weird yeah <laughs> but it's again it's that that to go back to my dweebishness point <laughs> it's that that kind of like this is this is so cool, man. It's like, no, it's not. This isn't cool. <laughs> this is not cool. Like, what I'm watching here is not cool. It's mm-hmm. dorky. Yep, but that's part of why it's so much fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. By the way, random fun fact. Thomas Newman did the music for this. And I just think that's hilarious. Thomas Newman, who is still not... He's one of the most nominated not winning academy award winner or academy award nominees so i just had to mention that cool so let's talk about 
Candyman from 1992. Uh, we did talk about the the sequel a couple mm-hmm. years ago, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, which was so great, and I still love it. And I just watched it again the other day, and it's so good. But um, yeah, let's talk about the original film, which was based on a novel by Clive Barker, right? Yeah, that right. Okay. Yeah, The Forbidden. Yes. And uh, but Candyman stars Virginia Madsen, Xander Berkeley, and of course Tony Todd. And uh it was directed by Bernard Rose, written and directed by Bernard Rose. Anyway, uh this movie came out in 92, and this very much is a film that is about urban legends it specifically focuses on one but this is a movie just about urban legends too because virginia madsen plays a grad student who is studying urban legends and writing her dissertation and decides to write her dissertation specifically on the candy man so um where should we start with this one this i mean this one has been talked about so so much you know mm-hmm. um but I, I think that so you know the Lo- the Lost Boys is very much about disaffection and and you know like as you pointed out drug addiction things like that. Candyman is is I mean you can't it's inextricable from race basically and it's interesting because I believe that the original Barker story is it's set in Liverpool and it's more about class than it is about race necessarily. But in this particular film, it gets like the the entire story gets moved to Chicago. And particularly the Cabrini Green um, projects and this this whole concept of this white grad student um, entering, you know, talking about an outsider entering spaces where they do not belong. This is very much like leaving aside the supernatural, like and and her friend um, played by uh, uh, Cassie Lemons warns her numerous times. We're just like, we should not do this. This is a bad idea. Right. We do not. Who, who and, and she's so her friend who's black warns her about this and they still enter. They kind of go into the space in order to research Candyman and the concept behind Candyman, et cetera. And it's their entrance into the space and particularly Helen's entr- entrance into the space that um, results in all of the murder and mayhem and violence that happens, because as Candyman tells her, you've um, you know, you've. Uh, what is it you've he talks about his congregation his congregation no longer believes right because she has entered the space and essentially explained him Mm -hmm. um as something like this isn't real this is actually you know this is just poverty this is just gang violence and things like that and he's saying like it's a lot more than that and now he targets her because of of what she has done to his sacred space at a certain level yeah one of his quotes is i am the writing on the wall the whisper in the and i cannot say it the way tony todd does i'm the writing (laughs) on the wall the whisper in the classroom without these things i am nothing so now i must shed innocent blood come with me Um, Um, when tony todd says those things just like okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) like yes okay i will come with you um yeah well and then he he goes on too and he says things like the pain is exquisite and uh there's nothing to fear and it's it's well he's such a captivating uh presence 
even just when he first meets her, like when you when you get the first scene with the two of them together in the parking garage, mm-hmm. and and you know he says, "Be my victim," and it's just like, <laughs> "All right, okay, okay sure, yes, I will. sure, <laughs> sure, sounds good." Mm-hmm. But it no it is asked. that like and and you know Clive Clive Barker, that's what Clive Barker does essentially. It's that that relationship between horror and eroticism and violence and eroticism and the like you know the yeah the whole the pain is exquisite kind of thing that it's about suffering but it's also about sexuality at the same time and it's that kind of tension that exists between it um but yeah i i think that it definitely has to be noted the fact that she doesn't well she does bring it on herself she says his name Mm -hmm. in the mirror multiple times Candyman really is one of those figures that you have to invite him in you know like the vampires you have to say hey, come on and victimize me, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does. Yeah. Well, and part of what gives him his power is the fact that when people do that, they're they're taunting in a way. Like, they're willing to say his name into the mirror because they don't, like, just because they're curious what will happen, but they don't necessarily really believe that he'll show up. And it's in that, Mm -hmm. it's in that gray space between belief and unbelief that he's able to thrive and that's what gives him power to come in and, and victimize people. Um, and it's, it's sort of this taunting and it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, I've never even saying Candyman out loud once not looking into a mirror always just makes me a little bit nervous. (laughs) I've never tempted fate this way ever. Well, I, I mean, no, I, I've, I've never done that. And I've never done the Bloody Mary thing either, which nope. is very much what, what this is in reference to, right? You're looking in the mirror and you say the name three times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It is that that taunting and it is that element of belief. You don't believe that the Bloody Mary or Candyman or whoever is going to show up and kill you. But also... I'm not going to do it, right? I know mm-hmm. I'm not going to look in the mirror and say that name five times or say that name three times or whatever, because what if it's, it, and it is that what if question. Right. Um, and essentially what she does is, is she does it, right? She, she, she essentially says, I don't believe. And she brings that disbelief into his space. Furthermore, when she goes to Cabrini Green mm-hmm. and when she essentially is like, and she catches the guy who is supposedly like posing as Candyman, right? Right. Um, and so it's like, oh, that's all that this is. And the little boy, uh, what's his name? Marcus, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. Um you know, says like, we, sh- you know, you shouldn't have done this, you know, this was a bad idea, et cetera. And she's just like, no, 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 no. It's just poverty. It's just gang violence. That's what it is. And it's that lack of belief that essentially makes her and everybody that surrounds her into a target because she's dis- she's disrespected him, essentially. Right. She said, I don't believe in you. And he says, well, I'm going to make you believe in me. Yeah. So I have some questions about the ending of this film. I don't know if we want to jump there now. Um, we kind of okay. do need to, like, I don't want to spend too much time on any one particular thing. But um, so th- at the very end, so this, she ends up meeting this mom who has a young baby who that mm-hmm. baby grows up and is the hero of the, or the protagonist of the 
the Nia DaCosta film. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, this baby gets kidnapped and um, or disappears. And we end up at the, by the end. Helen has figured out where he's at, is able to save him. It comes at great cost to her. because She ends up dying. Um, and then she kind of becomes sort of this urban legend herself and is able to able to go from beyond the grave. But uh, at the very, very end, in this sort of lair that has all this like graffiti art and stuff on the walls and this giant like image of 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 Candyman, we also see like at the end, this image of of her has appeared there. And he also makes comments about it was always you, Helen. And I've heard a couple of different interpretations of that ending. And I'm mm-hmm. just curious what you think, because I've heard someone say like, oh, she just reminds it because we get the backstory of what happened to Daniel Robitaille, who became the candy yeah. man. Um, and so I've heard, you know, some people just think that she reminds him of this white woman that he had fallen in love with, who just ended up murdered because of, or that she is supposedly the reincarnation of that woman whose name was also Helen. I I think that the the implication I think of the film is is closer to the reincarnation aspect. Although I would say it's not so much reincarnation, but a sort of spiritual relationship. Yeah. Right. And that part of so he's so the backstory of um of Robitaille is that he he has this, he's this great artist who has a relationship with um his his master's daughter, right? And is um and like and she becomes pregnant and so part of what Candyman is pursuing throughout the entire film is this kind of spiritual reunion of mm-hmm. her and of the baby right right and uh, so it's it's the family in a lot of ways the woman but also the child who's been torn away from him um and and i i don't think in I would have to watch the film. I watched the film again, but I would have to look at it again to see if um, there's ever any discussion about what actually happens to Daniel Robitaille's uh, lover and her child. Like what actually, because they talk about what happens to him. Yeah, they don't ever talk about her. But not about what happens to her. And I think that some of the later Candyman films, which are much lesser films, do address that um, in in not great ways necessarily. Mm -hmm. But but so it's never really revealed like what happens to to that that child or or that woman right but definitely my my interpretation has always been that there's a sort of spiritual reunion that he's seeking and that he eventually achieves by but she sacrifices herself not for him but for the child um and and to actually protect the child and to get the child out and to let the child survive but she still has this union with him she still becomes the urban legend that is connected to him and that is you know kind of trapped in that space with him and i think that the to the to degree i think that the film kind of says that she wants that at some level that there is that kind of again you know going back to the the horror and eroticism kind of element that there is like this sexual union that's going on that she desires that it's not just about saving the baby there's also a darkness that she is exploring and that she's indulging in and going with um but not but she refuses to let that happen at the expense of this innocent child Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So yeah, it, to to answer answer the question, my interpretation is I think that there's a certain a sort of spiritual reincarnation going on, though not necessarily like a direct oh this is the spirit of the past Helen in this woman's body or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. I think if they intended it to be fully a reincarnation, there would have been some more uh, signs. There would have been her like having memories or something that would have made that much more explicit. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts about Candyman? It is. It's a great film. It's it's such a it's a scary film, but it it has so many wonderful elements. Um, and and I I do think that it's there's so much to be said about it when it comes to this issue of race and this issue of whiteness and blackness and um, you know the fact that you've got this white woman invading these spaces and acting very much as a white savior figure, like she's. She's not disrespectful to the to the extent that she's not nasty to anybody, um, but she is disrespectful in the sense that she does not respect be- the belief systems or the reality of the world that is around her. Right, so she continuously, you know, kind of says to her friend, like, "Oh no, we're going to do this. We're going to be safe." And it's just like you are so fucking privileged to think that you could just walk into this space mm-hmm. where you do not belong. And and just be like, oh, I'm a grad student. Here's my card. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and her and her invasion of that space brings damage and violence on people, um, on the very people that she supposedly says that, you know, she not even that she wants to protect, but that she's studying under a microscope. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it is very much about the that violation of um, of to a certain degree the sacred or the violation of things that you're not supposed to violate yeah well and i really appreciate how like a lot of films that that center around a white savior character like they're allowed to just be the white savior and i think like you get some of that in this by the end but but she gets called out it's not just acceptable (laughs) and she ultimately has to die to um to you know save the child Mm -hmm. so so it's like she doesn't and she doesn't get a hero's story arc and i think that that is you know especially for the time period that this came out and i think that's good uh to, to their credit i think that's really good storytelling and and really smart storytelling that in some ways is a little bit ahead of its time definitely she she has to fix the damage that she has done because mm-hmm. a lot, most of what happens, and that's part of Candyman's point, is that the the damage that was done is because of her invasion of the space. It's very right. much the the like, um, you know, you disrespected the the temple kind of thing, mm-hmm. and and you bring death and destruction not just on yourself, but on a whole bunch of people that had nothing to do with it. And she yeah. has to try to fix that damage, and and fixing that damage includes saving the child. So it's not so much like she becomes the white savior. She's she's literally trying to fix the things that she fucked up. Right. Yeah, exactly. None of this would have happened if she hadn't invaded the space, in other words. Literally none of it. <laughs> Stay out of where you don't belong. So um, there's a lot of, especially horror movies, especially slasher movies, that deal with um, urban legends. Um, these get referenced a lot, like in in movies like Scream, and uh, also very much like we just talked about in Candyman. Uh, so it seems really fitting that in 1998 there would come along a slasher movie called 
Urban Legend, <laughs> which is a movie all about urban legends, and every murder in this movie involves some sort of urban legend. Even murder, even like non-murder scenes. There's just a lot of of urban legends referenced throughout this film that make it. Um, I can't say this is a good movie, but it's definitely an entertaining one. <laughs> It's a mean movie. When I first saw this film, I was like, this is just mean. And I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's mean in a way that, like, Scream Scream is not a mean film, right? There's not... You're kind of waiting for the violence to happen. But this was just like, I am really enjoying watching all these people die. (laughs) (laughs) There's something very nasty about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is like... You know, we talked about the 80s stacked cast. This is very much a late 90s cast. You've got Jared Leto, Alicia Witt, Rebecca Gayhart, Michael Rosenbaum, Loretta Devine, Joshua Jackson with a very cringy, but still kind of funny little reference to Dawson's Creek in there. Uh, Tara Reid. And of course, Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England as a professor (laughs) at this university where there's, you know, they have they have their own urban legend at this university of someone who died on campus and um and they're taking a class about fol- folklores and legends and uh it it just grows from there and i love that this movie opens on one of the urban legends that terrifies me the most <laughs> which is yeah. the stranger in the back seat <laughs> um that is one that still terrifies me to this day because it actually <laughs> it happened to a friend of mine. <laughs> this girl I know. No, uh, it actually really did. Um, I, my best friend, this is when we were like freshmen in college. She was at my house and she was leaving to go home. She went out to her car and uh, she got in and noticed like her music had been knocked over. And she was like, oh, that's weird. And she kind of looks back and there's a guy in her backseat. And she jumped out of the car and came screaming oh back to my house. And we called the police and they did not find the guy. Yeah. And I, that was (laughs) many years ago and I'm still terrified to this day. So this is like, that opening is like, it freaks me out still. (laughs) I mean, I, that's the thing with a lot of urban legends. There's very often some degree Uh of truth to them, right? That, and I think it's pointed out actually in the class that they're taking, that it's not so much that these just are made up stories, but it's like, there there's stories that may have actually something similar may have happened to mm-hmm. someone it's never this precise story right. right but it's something like that you know it's and that's where the urban legends kind of gain their power because they're a lot of them are just plausible enough that you're like yeah that could happen yeah that could definitely happen and it's and there's always like oh this happened you know to my friend's brother or oh yeah this happened to my second cousin or things like that where there's always that one story that you know is actually true yeah or that happened at this house across town in the city i grew up in or whatever yeah so there's always some connection like i remember hearing the um the story of like the roommate that gets murdered in college. Like I heard that from my cousin who told the story like it had happened at her school. So I thought this happened at my cousin's school and like that it was completely real. No, it didn't. It wasn't. 
<laughs> but but yeah, these legends kind of take on a life of their own just because of how they get told, the way they get passed down. Mm-hmm. And they're generally being passed down to very susceptible kids who want to believe in this stuff or not necessarily want to, but who very willingly do believe in this stuff mm-hmm. because the world is a scary place. So, yeah. So these urban legends kind of grow. So let's talk about urban legend. Um <laughs> the tagline on this movie is what you don't believe can kill you. <laughs> well, you know, again, to go back to what, you know, so Candyman, the story of Candyman is very much the urban legend. And of course, the one that, you know, we grew up with is is the Bloody Mary story. Um, but it's it's a very similar thing where it's like that that space between belief and disbelief. You don't believe the story, but you always check your back seat. Right. You know, you never say bloody mary in the mirror three times you so there is a kernel of belief underlying all of it you don't and and it's represented in this film about the the pop rocks and coke thing Mm -hmm. right so we're gonna well no of course i don't believe that but will you do it right right will you drink the pop? yes i am not no i don't think i will like and and that's the thing there's there's that little element of belief and that's what the um in this in this particular case that's what the killer exploits Mm-hmm. is you know the the element the that space between belief and disbelief mm-hmm. yeah it also just uh makes reality out of so many like urban legends that you hear about like the headlight thing don't flash your high beams because mm-hmm. um that's going to be a sign and they'll come after you but also don't not flash your high beams because maybe that's why they'll come after you or the guy with the hook outside of the car and then the fingernails on the roof and yeah. um the guy hiding under the car ready to slash your Achilles tendon <laughs> you know like all these things that we've heard so many cautionary stories about or, or horror stories about get used through this throughout this movie as like ways for the killer to exact some revenge because the killer in this case has a very specific this isn't just a this is another revenge story we see this in a lot of these type of slasher movies and um and we don't it takes a while before we understand exactly what the killer is after and why but um but this is like using all of these these ideas these scary stories to enact a very specific agenda well yeah and and also to um so part of the killer's uh uh, motivation is a result of an urban legend coming true as it were being treated as truth right and being exploited and it, it killing someone that they cared about um and because of that it like then spirals into this like well we're going to bring we're going to bring truth to all of the urban legends basically and um and of course in in all of the urban legends no one ever escapes right like no one survives the urban legend um and and that's that's very important as well and so yeah she she exploits she exploits that belief and lack of belief, but the fact that at least one person knows that there is some truth to one of the legends. Yeah. It's also a good way to discredit this, like this person that's being built up to be the final girl, which is Alicia Witt playing Natalie, um, Mm -hmm. where this is all at some point we finally realize this is all centered around her. And this is something to do with when she was in high school. Um, But 
but because you know when she's out with with uh um joshua jackson's character and um like she she sees him die <laughs> like he is dead and but because of the way that it happens when she's trying to tell everyone later they're just like uh that's not real and also wasn't he going away this weekend like he's just gone he was messing with you (laughs) and so it's like she kind of ends up letting them gaslight her a little bit while she's gaslighting herself but also that is like because it's using these urban legends that is a way for the killer to make her look ridiculous to anybody yeah. who is willing to listen because obviously that didn't really happen yeah exactly the the story oh no because i've heard that story before mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah just like oh you're not telling it right yeah you know yeah. that's the other element that keeps on coming up yeah it's it's actually i it's a lesser film in a lot of ways you know very much in the in kind of the the generation of those 90s slashers of like um meta slashers right so yeah. I, I know you did last summer which is also an urban legend um mm-hmm. and and stuff like you know and then scream obviously um but at the same time yeah it does do some very clever things and does do some very clever things with again exploiting also the audience's knowledge of those things because we've all heard those stories mm-hmm we all know a lot of the stories that they talk about like yeah i've heard that story before like it's it's one of those things that has been passed around um yeah. and well here's a version of it you know? yeah well here's actually a list of some of the urban legends that are either overtly acted out in the movie or at least referenced <laughs> so uh the murder uh the murderer in the back seat um let's see Coverage of Michelle, the, the first girl that gets murdered. Covered of coverage of Michelle's murder in the university newspaper is covered up by the dean, referencing the university cover-up of a campus murder. Um, and let's see, Brenda and Natalie attempt to invoke Bloody Mary. Uh, Professor Wexler, the pop rocks and drinking soda, and the whole death of little Mikey from the Life cereal commercials. Uh, that was also an urban legend. As far as I know, he's still alive and well today. Um, and then let's see the hanging from a tree above the car, uh, the gang initiation with the headlights off, um, the the roommate strangled in bed with the "Aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light?" the ankle slasher under the car, the let's see a guest at the fraternity party claims that the song "Love Roller Coaster" contains a real murder scream. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Um, the dog in the microwave, the kidney heist. And so those are all actually in the movie. And then a few that are referenced, um, replacing a roommate's birth control pills with baby aspirin. Um, Let's see. Uh, Caller asking if they have to have her, if she has to have her stomach pumped after performing oral sex and ingesting semen. (laughs) And then the babysitter and the man upstairs legend and um, spider eggs in bubble yum. (laughs) So, yeah. Those are some of the various urban legends in the movie Urban Legend. Well, and it's it's interesting because around about the time that like we when we decided to we decided to do this and uh, and I'd watched Urban Legend, I also then watched um, When a Stranger Calls. <laughs> yeah. So the 1979, which is a very odd film in a lot of ways, but is very is. much is very much that the you know the call is coming from inside the house story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the babysitter and the man upstairs. 
<laughs> so so watch it but but again i think horror films are very good at doing that good at like taking those stories that a lot of us have heard in one way or another and being like well here's the real story here's what really happened kind of right. thing which is what we end with in this movie because mm-hmm. the killer gets killed but then suddenly shows up at another college and says no <laughs> And because they're never, telling it wrong. <laughs> they never find the body. That's that's the thing. Just like, oh, okay. but they they killed they killed them, but but they never could find the body because the the current was so fast, you know, it's just like, well, are they still out there? Kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh anything else you wanted to mention as far as urban legend goes? It's it's not a great film, but it is a fun <laughs> film. <laughs> it's entertaining it's another one of those if you haven't seen it or even if you haven't it's been a while like it's entertaining enough don't don't expect this to be on the same level as like scream or some of those other mid to late 90s rebirth of of the genre but uh it's still worth watching definitely yeah and and i i do think in terms of the you know what we were talking about when it comes to urban horror right now this this takes place on a college campus primarily but it's very much using all of those urban and suburban stories that are like kind of a part of the of the american of american folklore and a lot of it you know it's funny we were talking about the witch and and witchcraft stories and things like that it all so much of it comes down to similar concepts and similar ideas that are, that just get repeated and transmogrified into their particular setting and to address the particular kind of repression or um, fears, right? Cultural fears that mm-hmm. are are underlying whatever place they're they're taking place in. So you know the col- the college campus, this the city, the um, uh, the, the vampire biker gang, the uh, the killer, you know, even with something like Candyman, where the story that most of us have heard is Bloody Mary. But it's like, oh, no, it's actually the story about this, this slave who was murdered and who is like haunting Cabrini Green. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Urban legends are fun and urban legends make great horror movies because they really yeah. do capitalize on the things that we're already afraid of yes yes you said that very well and succinctly for (laughs) all of that it's just like it's this it's this thing it's like yes it's all the things we're afraid of yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you all so much for listening i think this has been another really fun conversation we hope you've been enjoying our spooky movie month um so next the next couple weeks we're gonna do some more spooky movies so we'll be we'll be letting you know uh what to watch out for and um yeah we uh but we do appreciate all of you for listening we especially want to thank our patrons who help keep the show going they are ali brian connor estefania heather james judy karen cariata lauren Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. If you would like to join Patreon and become a subscriber and supporter of the show yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. There's also other ways you can support us. We do have our Ko-Fi account, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And we have stuff in our store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. But uh, if you are good on stuff and just want to read more of our works and our thoughts, you can go to our website, citizendamepod.com. We've got some reviews there, some more stuff coming up in the next few weeks. You can reach out to us. You can email citizendamepod at gmail.com or you can find us on the social medias. 
we're still technically on Twitter until it's done and gone. Um, but we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Citizen Dame Pod. And then we are also a Letterboxd HQ at Citizen Dame. And you can keep track of all the movies that we've been talking about on our spooky movie season. Every month we have a new list for all the movies that we've talked about that month. Uh, we also have all kinds of other lists. So if you're looking for for movies to watch or want to see links to some other things, just check us out on Letterboxd and give us a follow there. You can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on all the various socials at LH Business. And I am at Karen M. Peterson. So that's going to wrap things up for this week. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you.